You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Take your Bible, if you wouldn't, turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. When you find that, if you're able to stand, would you stand with me while we read the Word of God? We do have CDs and stuff back there. Uh, uh, The newest one that we have, uh, I'm not sure if we had it when we were here last time or not. Most of the things that we sang tonight were on that one. And then we have a brand new one, Lord willing, that'll be out sometime this fall. But uh, you'll, you'll be able to get that as well down the road. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse number 23. It says, The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him, saying, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren, and the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third unto the seventh, and last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good day that you've given to us. Thank you for the safety on the road. uh, Lord, thank you for all those blessings that we get every day that we don't even know and we don't even recognize. Lord, I pray tonight as we look into your word that you would use it in our hearts and lives. Help us to have open minds and open ears and allow your spirit to do the work that needs to be done in each and every one of us. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now here in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees have, have come to Jesus and, and they've come with a purpose. They come and they, and they ask a question, but they don't really want an answer. They're not asking this question because it's a great theological question that they need an answer to and they're not sure. And no, they are asking this question so that they can try to trip up the Savior and try to discredit him amongst those who are in the crowd. You see, sometimes when people ask questions, they don't really want an answer. People are like that today. Uh, There are people who will ask you questions, but it's not because they want or need an answer. They're just trying to either discredit you or change the subject. Sometimes they'll ask silly questions. They'll ask, "Can, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Well, that's a silly question. I mean, you don't want an answer to that. There's not a good answer for that. That's ridiculous. That's, that's the kind of question somebody asks you when they want to change the subject. And they don't want to, t- especially if you're trying to witness to somebody, that kind of question will come up. Because they want to change the subject. 
Sometimes they'll say something like this. How many angels can fit on the head of a pin? Well, that's a silly question. I suppose as many as want to. I, I don't know. And a better question is, why would angels be on the head of a pin anyway? Uh, nobody wants an answer to that question. Some will say, well, how can, how can a whale or a great fish swallow up a man and have him inside for three days and spit him out and he survives? They don't want an answer to that question. Because the answer is, it's a miracle. God intervened in time and space and set aside the natural laws that govern our lives and performed a miracle. And it's just proof of our great God. They don't want that answer. What they're trying to do is discredit the word of God. Sometimes they'll say things like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, let's just be honest. They don't want an answer. There is an answer. You know why bad things happen to good people? Sin. That's the answer. Sin is the problem. That's the reason bad things happen to good people. And the solution is Jesus Christ. That's not what they're looking for when they ask that question. But that's the answer. Or they'll ask you, if God is a God of love, why is there sickness and why is there war? Same answer. Sin. And the solution is Jesus Christ. That's the solution. You see, just like that, these Sadducees don't want an answer. Jesus gives them one, but that's not really what they wanted. They just wanted to try to prove that there's no resurrection. That the idea of a resurrection is silly. And when you're dead, you're dead. And that's the end of it. And so they came up with this scenario. They said there, there were seven brethren. And one married a wife, and, and then he died, and, and he gave her to the next brother. And he married her. And I know there's some cultural issues here. They're just a little weird. And gave her to the next brother, and he died, and, and then gave her to the next one. And, and here's my question. Why did the fourth guy marry her? <laughs> there's a pattern here. And you don't want to be in this pattern. Something is up here. And, and the fourth one dies. And the, finally, all seven of them have married her. The seventh one dies. And then finally, she dies. Well, can I just be honest with you? I think they made it all up. That didn't happen. They made that up. That's ridiculous. I mean, in real life, is that ever going to happen? No. Maybe number five or number six, one of them is going to refuse to marry this woman. And they just made up the whole thing because they don't really want the answer. They want to embarrass the Savior. So they say, all right, they're all dead now. All seven brothers and the wife, they're all dead. So in the resurrection, and they probably say it in a very sarcastic way because they don't believe there is a resurrection. In this so-called resurrection, whose wife will she be? Will she be the wife of all seven of them? Or whose wife will she be? And Jesus answers, look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, the Sadducees are a religious sect who are very proud of the fact that they are Bible scholars. 
These are men who study the scriptures and, and they learn the scriptures and, and they've studied them so hard they've found things even God didn't know was in there. People do that today sometimes too. And they've found this, this idea that there's no resurrection. And, and they, they consider themselves to be great Bible scholars. Now, if you want to make a Bible, a Bible scholar angry, you tell him he doesn't know the Bible. And that's what Jesus told them. He said, here's your problem. Here's why you don't have an answer. You don't know the scriptures. Now, he's just told this to theologians who spent their adult life studying the scriptures. And Jesus just looked them right in the eye and said, you don't know the scriptures. Uh, really? You want to make a theologian mad? You tell him he doesn't know the scriptures. And they, you can almost see the temperature rising. And then he says, not only do you not know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God. You don't know the scriptures. And by the way, the problem is you don't know the God of the scriptures. Talk about hitting them right exactly where it's going to hurt the most. That's it right there. You, you couldn't say anything more harsh to a theologian than that right there. You mean somebody can study the scriptures and, and even be a theologian and, and still not know God and not know the scriptures? It happens all the time. There, there are people today who spend their entire lives studying the word of God as a literary text, as just some kind of, uh, some kind of exercise, and they, and they study it, and they study it, and they study it, and they don't know God, and they come up with the wrong answers for every question. They do. Why? Well, because they don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. And he doesn't stop there. Then he explains a little more. Look at verse 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, now he's saying, look, look, you know the scriptures, or you think you do. Surely you've read this. What God said back in Exodus. You, surely you've read it. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now think with me for a minute. Why would God use three men who'd been dead for centuries already to prove that God is the God of the living and not the God of the dead? It's because the resurrection thing is absolutely true. It's because for those who are children of God, there is no real death. There's just the, the end of this life, and then we move into life with him. You see, when Jesus said those words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were more alive than they had ever been while they were trudging around on this earth. Because they were in the presence of God. And so he said, you don't know God, you don't know the scriptures, you need to know that your God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there are lots of titles for God in the Bible. Lots of them. Lots of names of God. And this is more than just another title that's used to say who our God is. It's a description of who he is. And that's what I want to preach to you about tonight. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, we're going to 
do a little bit of uh, going through the word of God tonight, but that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Genesis chapter number 12. I would hate for you to walk away tonight and say, well, Brother Rogers believes this or Brother Rogers thinks that because I'll just be honest with you. What I believe and what I think is irrelevant unless it lines up with the word of God. I want you to be able to say, I saw that in the Bible. Amen. Genesis chapter 12, verse number one. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. When you think about Abraham, and you think about God's interaction with Abraham, what comes to my mind first, preacher, is the promises of God. Because God shows up to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to do that for you. And just get up and go the direction I want you to go. And I've got great things waiting for you. And Abraham's whole life is marked by the promises of God. Our God is still the God of promise. He's still the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ for us. You see here in verse number one of chapter 12, he said, get thee out of thy country unto a land that I will show thee. What was he saying to Abraham? If you'll get up and go, I'm going to provide for you. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to figure it out. You just get up and go the direction that I've told you to go and I will take care of everything. God will still do that. He said in verse two, I will make of thee a great nation. Now you need to understand at this point, Abraham doesn't have any children. There's no Isaac yet. There's no seed. And God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So what was the promise? God was saying, I'm going to intervene in your life and fulfill what I've promised you. He didn't explain how he was going to do it. He didn't say when it would happen. But he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. In other words, I'm going to intervene into the processes of your life that you have no control over. And I'm going to fulfill my promises to you. What a great God. He said, I'll make of thee a great nation. He said in verse 2, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. He said, when you get over there to the promised land, I'm going to make your name great. In other words, you're going to have a reputation... As somebody that's been blessed by God. And not only will you have a great reputation, I will use you to be a blessing to others. What a wonderful promise. Now you remember when Abraham gets over there in the land of Canaan, God does bless him. His, his cattle are multiplied. He does very well. He, he's a wealthy man and, and he has much in the way of possessions and wealth. And when the, the little nations have problems... When they're attacked, when they have issues, who do they run to for help? Abraham, because God made his name great and made him a blessing to those around him. Wouldn't it be something to get to heaven and find out that God put you where you are so you could be a blessing to somebody else? I wouldn't be too surprising, would it? That God has you right where you are just because he's going to use you to be a blessing. In verse 3, he said, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. 
God said, I'm going to I'm going to pay attention to how these other people interact with you. And the ones that bless you, I'm going to bless them. And the ones that curse you, I'm going to curse them. Now, God never revoked that promise, by the way. I know there there is bad theology floating around on the Internet that says that God is done with Israel and they're he's finished with them. And now we are Israel. We are not Israel. We're the redeemed. We're the, we're, we are not Israel. Two different sets of people there. And God is not done with Israel. If you know your Bible, you know that what comes next on the timeline we call the tribulation. After the rapture, there will be a tribulation period. And God will then pick up his working with Israel. The tribulation is not about us. That's why we are out of here before it starts. The tribulation is all about God completing his work with Israel. That's what the whole thing is about. So that's why it's important how we treat that little nation over there in the Middle East. Because God still said, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. And it does not go well with nations that turn their back on Israel. It simply doesn't. You can check out history and you'll find it to be true. God made those promises and God kept those promises and is still keeping those promises. Our God is the God of Abraham. And he is the God of promise. Listen, you can mark it down. Every promise God has made for you, he either has or is or will keep. He will not fail on any of them. He will keep them all. But it doesn't stop there. He said the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. Now, when I think of Abraham, I think of the promises of God. But when I think of Isaac, I think of the provision of God. Look, if you would, at Genesis chapter 21. God has already said to Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'm going to give you and Sarah a child. Chapter 21, verse number one. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. From the very beginning, before you even know his name. Isaac is the provision of God for Abraham. Isaac is how God provides and fulfills the promise. There he is and the child is born and it's the fulfillment and Isaac has provision written all over it. As a matter of fact, in chapter 22, God tells Abraham to take Isaac up on the mountain and sacrifice him. You say, well, God didn't really mean that. That's not... Oh, yes, God meant that. That's what God told Abraham to do. Abraham believed that's what God meant. Tells us over in Hebrews that Abraham believed that. And he was ready to kill him. And he had him out there on the altar with the knife raised. And he's ready to plunge it into his child. And what happens? God provides. Suddenly there's a ram stuck in the thicket. And God provides. And now Isaac is free. You see, it tells us in Hebrews that that Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, believing that God could raise him from the dead. So why would he even think that? Abraham's never seen anybody raised from the dead because God promised he was going to make him a great nation. And if Isaac is gone, there's no nation. And so if God wants Isaac sacrificed, well, it just stands to reason God's going to raise him up. So, well, that's silly. No, that's faith. 
That's Bible faith right there. He's willing to obey God even when he's not sure what's going to happen because he believes the promises and then God provides. In Genesis chapter 25, Isaac and Rebekah have no children. You see, if God's going to keep his promise to Abraham, not only does Abraham have to have children, Isaac has to have children. In chapter 25, Abraham is going to die and he gives all of his wealth to Isaac. Provision. In chapter 25, verse 21, Isaac prays and says, God, uh, we need to have a child. And you know what happens? Provision. God not only gives them a child, he gives them two. And we can talk about whether that was a good idea or not, but they got two. Amen. They got two. All through Isaac's life, he is the provision of God. He sees the provision of God over and over and over. There's not a whole lot in your Bible about Isaac, really. I mean, Abraham, there's a lot. Jacob, there's a lot. Isaac is just a small section in there. But without Isaac, you don't have the promises of God fulfilled, and you don't have Jacob on the other end. Isaac is the provision in the middle. And listen, you just mark it down. God still provides for his people. He's promised to do it. He said in Philippians chapter 4, he said he would do it. He'd provide all of our needs. He said, but you know, the work situation is tricky now. And, and some things are around the country. Things are shut down and things are not moving like they're supposed to. And it's, and it's hurt this business and that business and hurt this job. And it's hurt my retirement. And it's hurt on and on. Listen, God can use all of those things to provide or he can provide without any of those things because he's the God of provision. He's still the God of Isaac. And then look, if you would, not only was he the God of Abraham and Isaac, but he, Jesus quoted Exodus and he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, Abraham, you see the promises of God. Isaac, you see the provision of God. And then there's Jacob. And Jacob, he's not a good guy. He's not the guy you want living next door. Because he's going to borrow your stuff and break it and never bring it back. <laughs> he, he's just... Jacob is, Jacob is trouble. He's always trouble. He's trouble from the very beginning. I mean, the whole story starts out with Jacob causing trouble. From the moment he's born, and then you get over there in chapter 25, and, and he's tricking Esau out of the birthright. That's not good. That's not nice. I mean, that's, yes, they're brothers, but Esau honestly would like to kill him at some point. I mean, they've talked about it. <laughs> they have. And Esau has said, I would like to kill you. Yes. And so it's pretty well understood. Nobody likes Jacob. He's not a good guy. He's a problem. You get down to chapter 27, and he steals the blessing from Isaac. I mean, with the help of Rebekah, they trick Isaac. They, just, they steal the blessing. It's just, it is bad all the way around. He is not a good guy. And so Jacob runs away because Esau is not happy. 
You're in Genesis. Go to Genesis 32. In Genesis 32, Jacob is, is sleeping. This is, this is the uh, account of him laying there and, and uh, falling asleep. And, and, and he has, a, he has a, a vision. Excuse me, not in chapter 32. Um, I've turned to the wrong chapter. Let me see where I'm supposed to be. Chapter 28, that's where I want to be. Jacob lays his head on, on a stone. Verse number 12, chapter 28. And he dreamed and behold a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heavens and behold the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham thy father and the God of Isaac. Do you see something missing right here? He doesn't say the God of Jacob. He says to Jacob, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land whereon thou liest, to thee will I give it and to thy seed. And, and he goes on and reiterates the promises made to Abraham. Look, if you would, down in verse 19. And he called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of that city was called Luz at the first. And Jacob vowed a vow, saying... If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then shall the Lord be my God. Jacob is still Jacob. He's still not a nice guy. And what Jacob is trying to do right here in chapter 28 is bargain with God. And say, God, those promises sound really nice. Now, if you'll do this and this and this and this, I will allow you the privilege of being my God. That's not how you approach the God of heaven. That, that won't work for you. And it didn't work for Jacob. And there's more trouble that follows. And finally, in chapter 32, he's heading back to meet Esau. And Esau is coming. And he's heard that Esau is coming. And Jacob is afraid they're going to meet. He thinks he's going to be killed. And so he does the noble thing. He sends the women and children first. He's still Jacob. He's not a good guy. <laughs> he sends the women and children out there. But then something happens. And Jacob finally meets God. And in chapter 32, it tells us that he wrestled with the angel of God all night long. And finally, verse 26, and he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Something happens in chapter 32 that didn't happen in chapter 28. In chapter 28, when he meets God, Jacob is still proud and arrogant and saying, Okay, God, I'll let you be my God if you'll do this for me and this for me and this for me. You get to chapter 32 and Jacob says... Okay, all right. God touches his thigh and he limps for the rest of his life. 
But now God says, you're not Jacob anymore. Now you're Israel. You have power with God and men. You're a prince now. And now the promises will be fulfilled. You say, well, then if Abraham is promise and Isaac is provision, what in the world is Jacob other than trouble? Jacob tells us that our God is the God of possibility. Because Jacob is trouble until finally he surrenders to God. And once he surrenders to God, oh, no, he's not perfect. <laughs> you can read the rest of Jacob's life. He, he's not perfect. He does some stupid things on down the line. But his heart has changed. And now, in Exodus, when God comes to Moses in chapter 3, he reveals himself to Moses and says, Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. You see, God saw what Jacob could be if he would just give up and surrender. Yes, our God is the God of promise. Thank God for the promises. He's the God of provision, and we wouldn't make it without his provision. But he's also the God of possibility. It's never over as long as God is still in control. Amen. And he'll always be in control. He's the God of possibility. Here's what I want you to see tonight. While God was talking to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you a great nation. God already saw Isaac and the fulfillment of those promises. As God was talking to Isaac, God already saw Jacob who would fulfill those promises and be that provision. And as God is wrestling with Jacob, and Jacob becomes Israel, God is already looking ahead. And God sees that one day there will be Joseph who preserves the nation of Israel, and they turn into a great nation. And, and he sees Moses leading them out of Egypt. And, and then he sees one of Jacob's sons, Judah, through whose line will come Jesus Christ into this world and die for your sins and my sins. He saw all of that as he saw Jacob, the troublemaker, and what he could be. God saw the possibility. And he sees the possibility for you as well. Oh, oh, you might have somebody in your life that's trouble. Maybe, maybe one of your children. Maybe a grandchild. Maybe a parent. Maybe a spouse. Maybe, I have no idea. Somebody that if we looked at them tonight, we'd say there is no hope there. There's nothing that can be done. There's, there's no hope. It's just going to end badly. It's bad now and it's only going to get worse and it's going to end badly. But that's only if you leave God out of it. As long as they're still breathing, it's not over. And there's the possibility that they could one day surrender themselves to him. And then some snotty-nosed little kid that you brought in on a bus or a van for Sunday school or Bible school or something could one day be a missionary somewhere around the world reaching people with the gospel because there's possibility in our God. We're not stuck with what we have. 
We're not stuck with things the way they are. There's nothing too hard for our God. And there's always the possibility that if we would just surrender, that child, that friend, that person that got mad and left the church and has messed up their life, listen, it's not over. It's not over. The young man who's about to be our next pastor at Bible Baptist Church in Fairbanks, Alaska. When I first went there in 1987 on staff, I know that's a long time ago. His family had just left the church. His older brother had done something stupid and got kicked out of the Christian school and so the whole family left the church. They ended up in the public school. They, they messed up their lives. It was awful. Anybody would have told you, it's too bad that family's gone. It's all over. Those kids will never do anything for God. They'll probably never be back in church. And yet, the youngest brother is going to be our next pastor very, very soon. Spent 14 years on the mission field in Fiji. He's going to be our next pastor. His older brother in the ministry I remember the night the whole family came back. The boys got right with God, got into church, started serving the Lord. And then the father and mother came back. I remember the night they stood in the auditorium there. And that man got behind the pulpit and he said, we never should have left in the first place. We want to come back. And we welcomed them back. Isn't God good? You see, it's not over till God's done. As long as they're breathing, God's not done. And you can go from being headed for disaster to do great things for God if you'll just, like Jacob, finally surrender. So I've, I've already surrendered to God. All is well. Well, then why don't you just keep praying for that other one? That other one who should be sitting next to you tonight, who's not there. Don't give up on them because I promise you, God hasn't yet. Don't give up. Our God is the God of promise. He's the God of provision. But you better be glad he's the God of possibility. Or some of you wouldn't be here either tonight. What a great God. Amen. Let's stand together and pray. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.